Amen. Those are good and true words, church. Go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you are new with us, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been in the Sermon on the Mount now for a bit, and we will continue to be there for a bit. It is, it is famous for, for a reason. It is absolutely loaded and rich. But what it's about, if we're going to summarize it, is that it's about the kingdom of heaven. It is King Jesus proclaiming his kingdom, who is a part of it, what it's like. And we are in the midst of a section here in chapter 5 where Jesus, after having explained that he came to fulfill the law, is now painting out and drawing out the ethics of his kingdom, right? What do these people, what does this kingdom look like, right? What are these people that make it up? What are they marked by? How do they live? And today... We're going to see this with regard to sexual ethics, the sexual ethics of the kingdom. And with this area, as with the other ones we've seen and will continue to see, we're going to see that the ethics of the kingdom are far deeper, far richer than anybody could possibly have imagined or expected or thought to be reasonable. Now, with this particular area, this area of sexual ethics... Few things breed as much shame and guilt as stuff that falls within this category. Am I right? There are also few things that do as much damage to their victims. And I know in a room of this size, we have both of those categories of people here. Some of you have been hurt very, very deeply by the way others have sinned in this area. And many of you have felt the guilt and shame of failing and falling in this area. And many of you have felt both. Coming to something like this, knowing that, right, and and being charged with caring for you in this, uh, I have to be honest, it's weighed on my heart all week. Um, from a human perspective, I, I can't do it, right? No, no person is sufficient to care for all of that, so to bring to bear what needs to be brought to bear for that. But uh, that is irrelevant because Christ is sufficient for these things, and that is who we are here to hear from. We are here to hear from him. He alone is sufficient for these things, but he is indeed sufficient for these things. And as we look at what he has to say about this part of our lives, as he gives us his law and his gospel, we are going to see that Christ brings help and hope, both to those who have been hurt and victimized by the sin of others, and those who have been perpetrators, who have hurt and used others. Christ is sufficient for both. Let's read in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. We pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. There are few parts of us that need care as much as this. There are few areas that expose our sinfulness more. And there are few things that can do as much damage to us. So Lord, I ask now that through your word, by your spirit, you would care for your people. That you would be a faithful and good father. That you would bring comfort where comfort is needed. Maybe where comfort has never been. Lord, that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed. Where hearts are cold that you would bring hope where before only has been despair. And ultimately, in all these things, we would see you as great and glorious, but also as gracious and merciful and kind. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, church, there's a lot of similarities to, in this passage, to the passage we looked at last week regarding murder. In both cases, what we've seen is that what the people are being taught by the religious leaders of the day is the letter of the law. The letter of the law. And we talked about how one of the things that Jesus exposes in this whole thing is that the the letter of law was never the point of the law. Right? And when we are interacting with the letter of the law, we are asking questions like, what do I have to do? Right? What's the bare minimum I have to do to get God off my back? Or how far am I allowed to go, right? How, how far can I go with this thing until I start to get in trouble? We're, we're trying to get as much latitude as me. What's the bare minimum I have to do to honor God to get him off my back so I can do whatever I want to underneath that? And that is very, very much the way the Pharisees taught the people about God's law, right? When teaching the commandment on murder, they said, don't murder or else you'll go to judgment. Everything beneath that, you'll be all right. You won't have to go see the Sanhedrin. You're good. Similarly here, their teaching on adultery was capped on don't violate your marriage vows by having sexual relations outside of marriage. And that is where they stopped. Just don't break your marriage vows like that. But what that is doing, looking at the law that way, is all you're looking to do is finding latitude, right? It betrays our attitude about God's law and about sin. There is a part of us that's looking for ways to be able to pursue that as far as we can, right? So it betrays the fact that we don't think God's law is good. Actually, our sinful appetites are good, and we're just trying to find how much we can get away with. And that is not the case. We are believing the lies of sin when we do that. There is nothing good about any bit of sin. There's nothing good in that direction. It is all lies and empty promises and prison and death. And God's law is not there to restrict us and constrain us and to keep us from what is being good. It is meant to guide us towards what is actually life-giving and towards true freedom. But we lose sight of that. We think God is like a mean big brother holding the toy out that we want to play with just above our reach. If we just get it, right? God is not like that. He is not capricious. Everything he calls us to is for our good and for his glory. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. 
saying what the Pharisees taught about this, right? Just don't commit adultery. You just do not have sex outside of marriage. That's it. It's a little bit like saying you can have an apple tree as long as there's no apples on it. You can have the roots, you can have the trunk, you can have the branches, you can have the leaves, just no apples. Just make sure you keep the apples off. But there's still an apple tree, right? There's, there's still, everything else is still there. You've just gotten rid of the most visible, obvious part of it. That's it. What have you really done? This is another one that, like murder, it shares the, the, the commonality of being kind of straightforward, right? If you go through the Ten Commandments, this is one of the ones that you might have a decent shot of feeling pretty good about, right? Yeah. Didn't murder anybody. Check. I'm great. I got one. Right? You get to coveting, and you're like, yeah, probably. You know, we all maybe do that a little bit. But murder, I can do that one. This is kind of in that box too, right? You know very clearly if you did it or not, and a lot of people don't. So this is one that you could potentially, if you keep it at the level the Pharisees did, you could feel all right. You feel like I've done what's required of me. I hit the bar. I'm okay. And so now I'm free to roam in this, in this area as long as I don't transgress that. The thing about this is this is a bar and a standard that the world would agree with, even now. And we know what kind of sexual confusion and, and deviance our world, world is filled with now. Even now, the, the majority of people agree that adultery for any reason is wrong. Even in this culture, in this climate, they still say that. So there's not anything particularly shocking or distinctively Christian about this. Right? If you keep it at this level. But Jesus here, as he is speaking about his kingdom, right? Is, is his kingdom just kind of keeping up with the world morally? No! It is a radically different supernatural kingdom. And as we saw last week, the ethics of his kingdom so far transcend the kingdom's of this world. Jesus is not content with knocking the apples off the apple tree. He wants to uproot the tree, leaves, branches, trunk, roots, and burn the thing to the ground and plant something good that will bear good, rich fruit. He wants no trace of this left. And that is exactly what King Jesus intends to do in his people, and that is exactly what will characterize his kingdom. So let's see how we get there, right? Jesus, when he teaches on the law, he does not just give the mere letter, he gives the spirit of it, right? The call against adultery was never to permit everything else. It was to show a direct a trajectory, a direction of all sorts of things that are bad for us. He gets right to it. He teaches that God's prohibition against adultery extends so much farther and deeper. In verse 28, we read, Jesus say this, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says, not, what God calls us away from is not simply sex outside of our marriage, breaking our marriage covenant. It extends further to what we take in with our eyes. But it goes beyond that. It goes to our very hearts. It goes to desires and longings that nobody sees. 
But in doing so, he does exactly what he did when it comes to murder. Right? The very law that we thought, okay, I can check this box off. I'm good. Well, then we come to realize, no, actually, I am a murderer. I have harbored hatred and anger against my brother. He does the same thing with us. In taking it down to our very motives and desires, he pins us all down as adulterers. There is nobody in this room who can say that they are above and beyond this. Honestly. We have all fallen to this. There's not a single one of us who can look at his law rightly here, understand it this way, and stand happily on the outside looking at everyone else, looking down our noses in self-righteousness. Jesus has blown that up in this one sentence. Whether that sin has borne its full fruit into full-fledged adultery or not, naturally, by nature, our fallen selves, we are adulterers. We long for things that are not ours. We long to use things that do not belong to us to satisfy our own desires. So the first thing Jesus does here is he clarifies the ethic, right? He says what this is really about. And in that, it kills our self-righteousness. Right? Okay, I can't do that. So what's our, now we're all guilty. Now what do we do? Well, the thing that we do with guilt is we try to manage it, right? We don't like to be guilty. So we want to get rid of it. And so our next instinctive mood, move in our flesh is we might agree with Jesus that we have a problem, right? That we might agree with him about lust here. And we might agree that what he has shown as true righteousness is something that none of us can claim, right? But the way we go to manage this, the way we go and respond to this is often very, very wrong. Our first response to guilt is to shift it. Is to shift it. And I think this is one of the places that this comes out most subtly and deceitfully in us. Right? Remember how Adam and Eve did this in the garden? Right? There's actually a lot of interesting connections between this passage and the way it's written and actually Eve's kind of lusting after the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But what I want you to think about right now is when they are confronted by God about it. And what do they do? Adam says, oh, it was the woman you put here with me. Right? And what does Eve say? Oh, it was that snake. Right? There's no ownership of what they've done. It's always this scapegoating, passing the buck, trying to shift the guilt, shift the blame on to somebody else. And this is often what happens once we're confronted with our lust and our lustful hearts. And it happens in such a subtle way, it can even have a feel of, of piety and righteousness to it. It shifts guilt away from the person, the lustful person, and on to the one lusted after. It shifts guilt away from the one with the illicit desires onto the object of those desires. Right? Sometimes we do this in a broad way. Right? We complain about our culture. Our culture is so overly sexualized. Right? No disputing that. Right? It's, it's everywhere. Right? But it's one thing to acknowledge that. It's one thing to use that as the reason. 
that we're lustful. It's not the reason you're lustful. It's not the reason you're lustful. It's not it at all. It does not make lust unavoidable. Frankly, the culture that Jesus and the first generation of the church lived in was incredibly sexualized. There were things going on in that culture that would make us blush and people in our culture blush. This is not a new thing under the sun. And yet Jesus clearly does not put, have the buck stop there. No. So that's one way we do this, right? We deal with the gutter like, well, this is inevitable. How, how in the world am I supposed to not when this is around me? But it actually gets worse, right? Sometimes we use it in a more personal, individual way, right? Oh, people, other people aren't modest enough, right? They're not, they're not helping me the way that they should. It's their fault. No. No. Jesus leaves no room for that here. The way somebody else dresses or the way somebody else acts in no way justifies your lust. doesn't matter what it is. You'll find nothing of that here. Sometimes that grows into a really insidious and unchristlike thing where the opposite sex becomes demonized, right? That they're a threat. And so the way that I relate to other people is that I avoid. I avoid them. All women are temptresses. All men are trying to seduce women. That kind of thing. And so we withdraw, we pull back from the entire half of the human race. It includes our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the opposite sex is dangerous. They need to be avoided for our lust. And again, this misses the point. And it's wrong. And it's sinful. You do not lust because the other sex exists. They existed before sin was ever in this world. And it was a good thing. Jesus, these things can have a a, a very much a sense of self-righteousness, right? When I can cast dispersions on everyone around me. Oh, this culture. Oh, these people and what they wear these days. Oh, everyone's trying to lure me in like you're some kind of catch. They, they, they can give you this allure. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so pious, so holy. It was the exact opposite of what this is. This is a perversion of true righteousness. Right? This inverts righteousness and justice. It reverses the sinner and the sinned against. It reverses the guilty and the victim. The victim, the one who's objectified, the one who's taken advantage of, is made to feel ashamed, made to feel guilty. And that is wrong, and that is sin. It is not true. And how dare we use that as a way of dealing with our guilt? How dare we make those who are objectified to feel the shame of the guilty? Nothing could be further from Christ's likeness. This can lead us to demonize beauty when beauty is a good thing, 
Beauty is a good thing. Beauty is something that God created. It flows from the very nature and character of him. Beauty was given by God to lead us to honor and to glorify him and to honor what he's made. It is not bad for another person to be attractive and to be beautiful. That is something that should cause us to rejoice. Sin makes nothing beautiful. Beauty can only come from God. I love this prayer. Uh, It's from a pastor up in Nashville, an Anglican guy named Doug McKelvey. He's written a couple books of written prayers, and he has a prayer, uh, a prayer upon seeing a beautiful person. I think he captures this really well. He writes, Lord, I praise you for divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now train my heart that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. We should be able to see beauty, right? And not have it devolve into sexual desire, but to see it as something that God has done in a reflection of him. The answer is not to degrade beauty, not to pursue ugliness, but to appreciate and to love beauty the way we were designed to, the way that God intends us to. Beauty is not the problem. It's our misuse and abuse of beauty that's the problem. And the way Jesus describes what's going on here makes this very, very clear, everything I just talked about. Listen very, very carefully to what he says. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just as a side note, this goes for men or women. He's not doing this specifically only for men. All right, supplies either way. But listen to the way he talks about it. He says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent. The sin here is not entrapment. The sin is not that the woman seduced the man. No guilt is laid at the foot of the woman. Who's lusted after here? The one who's objectified. Nor is it a sin of the eyes. Right? Seeing the woman is not the sin. Where's the sin? Looks at her with lustful intent. The sin is not in the hands. The sin is not in the eyes. The sin is in the heart. The sin is not in seeing beauty. The sin is what you do with beauty. The way that you abuse it and distort it which becomes clear when Jesus says what the sin is. It's adultery in the heart. It's adultery in the heart. The sin lies wholly, completely with, the pers- with what the person does in their heart, with the look. That is where the sin is. It is the desire to take what is good and what God has made and then to take it, take what is not yours, and use it for yourself. That is what Jesus is describing here and what he categorizes under this sin of adultery. The sin is not seeing somebody attractive or even acknowledging that, but the sin is taking beauty that is not ours and using it to gratify ourselves. I mentioned there's a lot of connections between this and Eve in the garden. A lot of similar wording and stuff. And what does Eve do when she looks at the fruit after Satan kind of points it out? Say, hey, look at this. 
She sees it. What does she decide? She decides it's good for food for her, right? She looks at something that she knows is not hers, and she decides it's good for what she wants to use it for. That is a great description of lust. That's what we do. We look at something that does not belong to us, and we decide to take it and use it for ourselves in a way that does not belong to us. So Jesus does not let us blame our lust on what we see. Because that's not the root. That's not the root. The root is in the desires of our heart. And this is a consistent thing with Jesus. Right? I'm not pulling this out of thin air. Jesus says this over and over again. Matthew 15 is one example. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of a mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. He's saying it again right here. Where do murder, adultery, sexual, where do these things come from? They don't come from out there. Nobody made you do them. They come from your heart. What is out there may make the temptation harder. It may cause some suffering, but it never makes you sin. The sin comes from your heart. That is the corrupting thing. And so if the source is your heart, you can get rid of all the outside stimuli and lust will still be there. You can make everyone dress in cardboard boxes till the end of time. There are people who went into monasteries and went completely away from civilization to try to escape these desires. And you know what they found out? It didn't work. It does not work. You can do all of that stuff on the outside. You can be as radical as you want to with it, and it will not fix the problem because the problem is in us as sinners. That's where the sin comes from. Don't want to flip this, right? Because one of the dangers that arises from this blame shifting, right, of, of moving the accountability for the sin from something that we do, regardless of what's out there, and moving it onto the object, is that it can keep us from seeing what we ought to positively pursue in relating to each other. Right? Last week we saw with murder. The point of murder is not just so you don't kill anybody and just so you're not bad to each other. It is a guardrail to steer you to a positive thing you are meant to pursue with people. You are meant to pursue reconciliation and you are meant to honor people. Right? God's law is not a bunch of no's. It is no's that guide you to what is good and what is life-giving and what is free. So this prohibition against lust, it is a prohibition against lust, but to what end? We have to ask that question. It's not just stop that. That's, that doesn't, that's not going to get us, that's not going to move the ball forward anywhere. He's calling us away from lust for a reason, because there is a different way that we are supposed to interact with each other. There is a different way that we are meant to engage with each other. And when we shift blame on to other things for our lusts, it completely hamstrings our ability to do this. God's law is not primarily about avoidance, but in leading us into what is good. The opposite of lust is not to simply avoid lust to go and hide ourselves away. 
right? Some uh, early Christians actually even castrated themselves to try to deal with this problem. It didn't work. But it doesn't get us to where we need to go. The opposite of lust is not avoidance, it's love. It's love. The opposite of lust is not avoidance, it is love. It is relating to people as fellow human beings and image bearers of God and seeking their ultimate good, not using them to gratify yourself. This is one of the main ways Jesus summarized our purpose here. Our purpose here is to love God and love our neighbor. That's what we're put here to do. This is what is good for us to pursue. We will never regret doing these things. Jesus said, you can boil down everything I want for you to do into these two things. We are called to love our neighbors, not avoid them. Love sees people as people, regardless of their attractiveness or their dress or even their morality. It sees them as image bearers of God. And because they are, they are to be honored and cared for. We are to seek their ultimate good at our expense, not use them for ourselves. Love is the opposite of lust. The call away from lust is a call to love and to care for people. And this is heightened even more within the church community because not only do you have value because you're made imago Dei in the image of God, but you are also We're also brothers and sisters. We have been adopted into the same family with a bond that is even tighter than blood because it's the blood of Christ himself that binds us together. We have an even greater responsibility within this family to do this. You cannot spend your life ostracizing yourself from half the body of Christ and honor God. That is not what he's calling us to here. The guard, lust, the call away from lust is a guardrail that guides us to how we can actually love people. You're not going to be able to love half the body of Christ if you're caught up in lust. You have to run away from it so you can do the positive thing that God has called you to do, to, to participate in this privilege of giving yourself over, spending yourself for the ultimate good of others. As Christ did. I think there's a great contrast here. Uh, one aspect of it is biblical, and other ones that we get from some other sources. But there were, when it comes to the Pharisees, if you look at some of the other writings outside of Scripture, there were different categories of Pharisees. And one of the categories was called the bloody Pharisees. A little stark, stark title. But they were called the bloody Pharisees because whenever they saw a woman, they would cover their eyes. And because they were doing that, and you're out about in town and stuff like that, they were constantly running into things and tripping and falling, and they were like a bloody mess all the time because they were basically blind a bunch of the time, right? And again, like, these are the people who are supposed to be shepherding Israel, right? And this is what they're doing. This is how they're reacting. Like, think about that. These people are your spiritual leaders who are supposed to love you and care for your soul. And whenever they see you, they cover their eyes and won't even look at you. Right? So that's one end. That's kind of the extreme of the thing I'm talking about that we don't want to do. But compare that with what Paul tells Timothy to do. 
In 1 Timothy, he talks to Timothy, this, this young pastor, about how he should engage with the church. He talks to him about how he should engage younger men, older men, older women. And when he talks to him about how he should engage with younger women, he says he should engage with them as sisters with all purity. That's perfect. And that is so unlike the bloody Pharisees, which is really funny because it sounds like I'm swearing in British. But the bloody Pharisees. All right. This is, this is so different, right? Paul doesn't say, hey, Timothy, stay away from all the women of the church. Don't go near them. Don't talk to them because they're a danger to you. No. He says, you love them and care for them like your sister. They are your family. You have been entrusted to shepherd their souls. Do it in all purity, though, because you won't do it if you don't do it in all purity, Right? The answer is not avoidance because we will fail and sin in another grievous way if we pursue that. This is how we are told to relate to each other within the church. You are my sisters and brothers. I do not get to treat you as less than that. Right? I don't get to treat you as less than that. Nor do any of us. So we have something positive to pursue. The call isn't just, okay, don't lust. Stop it, quit, stop it, stop it, quit. No, we have something positive to give people, right? No, you have a purpose when it comes to how you relate to each other. Man, you have a purpose when it comes to relating to your sisters in Christ in the body. You are their brothers. What does that mean? You love them, you care for them, you protect them. You should be safe for them. That's what you're called to do. Ladies, you are our sisters. You're called to love and care for us. Flat out. We don't get to like hedge this. This is what it means to be Christian. This is what it means to be part of the church. It's so hard to pursue holiness when it's just couched in only in negatives and what you avoid. Right? There's nothing to pursue with that. Just stop it is not a compelling vision to move towards. But you know what? Stop using people and care for them. Give yourself for them. Stop consuming them and abusing them and pour yourself out for them because that's where joy and life and freedom are found. That's something you can give to people. That's a compelling vision you can hold out to them. Right? And just as a brief side note, parents, you have to give your kids this vision early. Start it now. They are going to hear all sorts of things about the way they should relate to each other. Start cultivating not just what they shouldn't do, but what they are called to, what they have the privilege of doing. One of the things I talk to Caden about all the time, he's probably so sick of hearing it, I ask him, hey, what is your strength for? You know, usually it comes on the heels of he whacked his sister in the head with something or anything like that, but what is your strength for? It's to protect and care for people. Over and over and over again, we're talking about this. He's six. I'm doing that to lay groundwork for this, right? Don't let your parenting be all about just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Give your kids a positive thing to pursue and run after, especially when it comes to the opposite sex. And as they get older and they start relating in different ways, give them a positive vision and something to move towards, Does that make sense? 
They need it just as much or if not more than you do. All right. So we've seen that the reality of lust is that it springs from our hearts and it cripples our ability to love others as we are called to. It keeps us from what God has truly designed us for. Now we get to what do we do about it then? Okay, we know where it lives. We know what it does. We know what it keeps us from. What do we do about it? Well, Jesus has some stark words for us. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. There's two main things that we see here in what Jesus says. Um, I think the first question that comes up, though, is, is Jesus serious? Right? Do we, do we need to have, like, a hatchet party and, you know, called Civil War-style amputations here? Like, like this, is, this is pretty intense language. Um... Is a yes, he is serious. Yes, he is serious. In a way, if you think about this the right way. Because the first and main the first point we have to see here is that we treat our own sin far too casually. We treat our own sin far too casually. We are so quick to shake our heads at the depravity of the world and look at the failures of people around us all while we are more than happy to toy and coddle sin within us. We just don't see sin as bad as it is. We are not holy the way God is holy. He absolutely abhors sin. So much so that a single lustful thought is damnable. Right? Takes you to hell. We're sinners. It just doesn't bother us that much. We're used to the gross unholiness of it all. So we just tend to relativize it. It's not that bad. Yeah, you just, you know, just keep some of it around. We don't want it dead. We just want to keep it under control. Management is what we pursue. But the truth is, the most dangerous poison is the poison that's inside of you. Not the stuff that's on the shelf, not the stuff in your neighbor's house, the stuff that you have swallowed the stuff that is inside you. That's the poison that kills you, right? We have to realize and try and ask for the Lord's help to see sin the way that he sees it, right? And that's exactly why I say Jesus means what he says here. He's trying to communicate the gravity of sin. Sin is a huge deal, And one thing I want to say about this, before I move on, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's important. For those of you who have suffered at the hands of another's lust, you should hear these words as a comfort and a balm to your soul. Because you may not see justice, right, in, in the sense that you should here in this world. Lots of people get away with lots of things. But Jesus does not treat sin that way. Jesus does not treat sin that way. 
he, every sin will be held to account. Every single one. Even if nobody else ever knows. Justice will be done on your behalf. The fact that Jesus takes sin seriously is a double-edged sword for us. As sinners, it's hard, but as those who suffer at the hands of sinners, it's, it's a joy. It's a joy that justice will be done. There are so many despicable, disgusting, abhorrent things that happen in this world. Everyone will receive its comeuppance. Even if it doesn't happen here. And you also need to know, not only does Jesus treat the sin of others that way, but he will never treat you the way that you have been hurt. He never treats you this way. He never uses you. He came to give himself for you. So there's comfort here on two fronts. People will fail you. People will hurt you. Christ never will. He is perfectly safe. He is for you. And justice will come. The truth is, with regards to our own sin, guys, the truth is we would often rather sin much and suffer little than suffer a lot and sin little. Because ultimately, what resisting temptation, right? Feeling lustful desires and not satisfying with those, putting those to death, it's a, it's a kind of suffering. It hurts. When we have appetites, they want to be what? Satisfied. They don't want, like to be rejected. So it's a bit of suffering. And too many times we would rather choose sin over a bit of suffering. And what Jesus' words say here, so that is absolutely 100% Always the wrong decision. Always the wrong decision. If we truly understand sin rightly, if we saw sin the way that God does, and it could be stopped by the loss of an eye or the loss of an arm, we would gladly make that trade. We would gladly make that trade in a heartbeat. Sin is a capital offense. The smallest sin costs life. So to lose an arm or an eye, as opposed to your life, that's a real good deal. You're getting a great discount. But we have the hardest time seeing sin in that way. So the first thing we need to see here is the gravity and the weight of sin. Believing the gospel, believing in the sufficiency of Christ for our sin, does not diminish the weight of sin. If anything, it elevates it. We have the biggest view of sin because it's something that we cannot make up for that only Christ can. Let's never make that mistake. The grace and mercy of Christ does not make little of sin. It makes much of sin. It took the perfect blood of God to forgive and redeem us. So that's the first one, and that's the one on the surface. But there's another one here that's more subtle and I would say actually even more important. And that is that cutting off your hand or getting rid of your eye doesn't deal with lust. Right? If you could cut off your hand or get rid of your eye and deal with the sin, we should do that. Absolutely. That's a good deal. We should do it. It doesn't work. Because where 
does lust live? We've already talked about this, right? Is it in your eyes? No. Is it in your hands? No. It's in your heart. You can chop off limbs all day long. It doesn't get rid of the root of the sin. You can hack away at the leaves and the branches and the trunk, but as long as the root are there, there's a tree. It's not gone. Now, you can lose an eye and live. You can lose an arm and live. I have friends who've lost both. And they're trucking along doing fine. If you lose a heart, you don't live. You're dead if you do not have a heart. This is important, guys. All right? We can lose an arm, you can lose an eye, you can live. If you lose a heart, you die. You simply cannot live without one. So Jesus, with these last couple words, he's literally painting us into a corner. The sin in your heart is killing you, but you can't hack your heart out because you die. He is painting us into the exact corner that he has always wanted to paint us in, that he's going to paint us into over and over here, to realize that this is a problem that is beyond us, that this is a problem that we cannot fix. There are people who lose their hearts and live. Right? But it's very few. And you know how it works? They get new hearts. They can't live without one. A skilled surgeon has to take out the old heart and let it die on a table and put in a new, life-giving, healthy heart. That's how it works. That's the only way you can pluck out your heart and live. And the good news is, is that Christ came to do just that. That's exactly what he came to do. And he can, and he does. Ezekiel, when he was prophesying about the new covenant that Christ was going to bring, he said this, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone, that lustful, murderous heart that we all have by nature. I will remove that heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may, what, walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them. What he's calling us to right here. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. What we need is exactly what the new covenant promises. We don't need to simply be better, to be more disciplined, to be more radical. We need God to act on us and make us new. It's the reason you only get into this kingdom by being born again. You can't climb the walls. You can't break in the door. You have to be born into it. You have to become somebody completely new. That's the only way this sin gets dealt with. And this is what Christ came to do. It's an an impossible answer for you. But it's the reason Christ came. He does it. He takes out hearts of stone and he gives hearts of flesh. He's the greatest heart surgeon who has ever lived. When you become part of Christ's kingdom through faith, it means Jesus took your stony, sinful, lustful, murderous heart. He took it out and he gave you his very own heart in the person of his spirit to indwell you. He took your stony, dead heart and he killed it on Calvary. And he put his own heart in your chest through through the Holy Spirit. And now by that spirit... What's King Jesus doing? 
We said at the outline of the service, what, well, part of what he's proclaiming the kingdom is that he makes the citizens of the kingdom into what they are. Right? These things that he's talking about are not, hey, you better do this to get in. No. These are, this is what I make my people into. This is what they will be. Because I am the one who justifies them, I am the one who is sanctifying them, and I am the one who will glorify them. This is what my kingdom will be because I will make it that way. So now by that spirit, King Jesus is sanctifying his people, causing them to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Causing us with those lustful desires to come up, not to coddle, not to play with them, not to indulge them, but to hate them and despise them as the death trap that they are. To see them for the despicable, disgusting thing it is to abuse an image bearer of God. Do we do it perfectly? No. Sadly, no. We still fail, and it's grievous, and it hate it. Hate it. Just like Paul talked about in Romans 7. I want to do what God says, but this other thing inside of me, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's our experience here. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be a war. There's going to be this tension of longing to honor God, of longing to do this, and still finding ourselves failing. But this new heart that comes with this new covenant is the promise that in the midst of those struggles, this will ultimately get finished. There will come a point when every lustful desire is stripped out of you and there is none left. And you will always only look at your fellow image bearers and look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and your only impulse will be to give yourself for them, not to take them for yourself. That day will come. It will come. It is promised and guaranteed because the work of Christ is finished. In the meantime, we fight. We fight from the rest and freedom from the gospel, knowing that our failures are covered and forgiven, that Christ loved perfectly where we fail to love. And so we fight. We fight to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to give ourselves for them, not to take them for ourselves. And when his kingdom comes in full, all that lust is going to be banished within, without. It's all going to be gone. And that's going to be sweet freedom. Church, whether you, whether you struggle with lust or you've been hurt by lust, the lust of others, until that day comes, he cares for you here through his means of grace. Right? He may not be done. He may not have brought that full comfort, that full peace yet, but he is caring for you in the meantime. Right? He has not left us here as orphans. He has not left us to do this alone. You've been given a church. You've been given a church. You are not meant to struggle and fight against lust by yourself. It's the surest way to lose. This stuff thrives in the dark. It's so easy to justify, so easy to tolerate. Right? And one of the most subtle schemes of Satan is to let the, the shame of being a sinner keep you from getting the help that you need to follow Christ and pursue his glory. So one of the moves that we have to make, church, is we have to care more about being holy, pursuing holiness, than looking holy and having a certain image. Right? Would we rather admit our sin to a brother, to a sister, admit our struggles 
Have them help us, have them pray for us, have them go before the throne of God and bear that burden with us so that we might be helped, so that we might honor God and care for our brothers and sisters better? Or would we rather look a little bit better? You've been given a church. You're not meant to bear your burdens by yourself. Sin is fought best together. Your lusts lose their deceptive power when they're exposed to oxygen and the light. God saved you into his church for your care and for your comfort. Right? But this also goes for those of you who have been hurt. You are not called to carry that burden by yourself either. You have been given a church for your care and comfort as well. And I know it's hard because churches are imperfect. And sometimes they themselves hurt, which is so sad and not the way things should be. But such is this world. But for all that being said, the church has been given to you. The the church is a hospital for sinners and sufferers. You are meant to find comfort and care here. So if you've been hurt and you've been wounded, there's no pressure, right? Nobody's going to make you say stuff that you are not ready to say. But as imperfect as we are, we want to love you and care for you. You need to know this. If we do not do this, we are failing at what we are called to do. You do not need to walk that alone. And there's an ultimate hope for you too. It's not just an ultimate hope for sinners that that we will one day cease to lust and we will view each other rightly all the time. There's hope for those of you who have been hurt as well. When we look to Revelation, we look at what this kingdom coming in its fullness looks like. There's these beautiful little phrases. We know so few of the details, but there's these beautiful phrases that describe it. It talks about how sorrow will be no more and there will be no more tears. All right, whatever pain and suffering you've gone through, no matter how you have been hurt, there is going to be healing when Jesus comes and brings his kingdom in its fullness that wipes it all away, that heals you perfectly. You will not carry the wounds with you forever. You may carry them throughout this life. They may never be totally healed, but a final healing will come. All right, when you enter into that kingdom. You are going to be loved perfectly by God. You're going to be loved perfectly by your brothers and sisters in Christ. There is not going to be a thing that you can remember or draw to mind that holds any sorrow or grief for you. So you have a great hope, even in the midst of your suffering. The church is where we are reminded of who we are through the preaching of the word to the administration of the sacraments. We're reminded of the fact that a perfect holy God knows us and loves us for all of our sin and brokenness. We're reminded that our heart of stone has been taken out. We've been given a heart of flesh and we are now his and we are being sanctified and made in the image of Jesus Christ. It is the place where our burdens are shared, where we do not have to walk alone anymore. It's the place where we are restored with gentleness when we stray. It is God's design and provision for the care of your soul. 
this side of eternity. It's this place. It's motley as it looks with our poster boards and plastic chairs and, you know, it doesn't look like much. But it's the very thing that God designed to meet your needs in this life as a sufferer and a sinner. To care for your soul until you get home. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. So thankful to have to have guidance in this area, Lord. Uh, it's man, there's so much damage to be done here, and, and it's so easy to see um, just people wandering around in darkness, just killing and breaking each other by not understanding and, and living in accordance to your design with this. And so we thank you for your revelation. We thank you for giving us your law. We're thankful for the way that it shows us our guilt so that we will run to Christ. And we're thankful for the way that it points us to the way of life and freedom. But Lord, as thankful as we are for that, we are more thankful for your gospel. Lord, we are thankful that as wretched sinners who every single one of us has been an adulterer by the standard that Jesus articulates here, can now find the throne of the holy God, a throne of mercy and grace, rather than one of wrath and judgment. Not because of any perfection or improvement in us, but wholly by the work of Jesus, who did this perfectly. Who, if anybody had a right to use us, it was him, he created us, we're his. He had every right to use us, but instead of doing that, He took on flesh, he humbled himself, he came as a servant, and he gave himself for us that this might be true, that we might be delivered out of what our sin rightly deserves. We rejoice in that, and I want want to pray for our church right now. Lord, I pray for the lusts that remain, the flesh that we continue to battle against. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit, help us to pursue loving and caring and giving of ourselves as you would have us, help us to despise and hate lust. Lord, make us into a safe place to people who come. And when they come, they know they will not be used, but they will be loved and cared for. Lord, I pray for those in this room who have been the victims and suffered at the hands of lustful sinners. Lord, I pray for your comfort, for your grace, for your mercy on them. I pray that you would help us to care for them well. Help us to know how to love them. Help us to be a balm to their soul as you've called us to be until you bring us home. Thank you for your word. We thank you and ask that your spirit would have his way in us with it. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.